Uh, if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. It's Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The, di the, the disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Then children were brought to him and that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, for Jesus said, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The man said to him, All of these I have kept. What, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you will have followed me. You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life but many of who many who are first will be last and the last first thank you
continually amazed at how much God's word agrees with itself and does not contradict itself. I would encourage you today, after you've listened to the sermon, to go back and read this chapter that we just read. So many parallels. I also thought Mike was going to start preaching. <laughs> Let him preach once, you know. It's a whole if you give him us a cookie thing, right? <laughs> Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. As you turn there, I wanted to kind of give you guys a, a preview of coming attractions. We're about to wrap up what we've been doing, like little mini, a mini-series within the book of Proverbs. As you know, overall, we're studying the book of Proverbs right now. But after chapter 9, it gets really difficult to do that verse by verse. So we're kind of going to break this down into mini-series. We just finished. We're, today is our last one of difficult Proverbs. And in the next weeks, we're going to be doing a mini-series on, uh, on what family relationships looks like in Proverbs, followed by Proverbs teaching on the power of words, and then finally looking at Proverbs teaching on deadly follies. So now you've got to have an insight of what we're going, going to be doing up through about May. I look forward to, continue, con- to continuing to teach through the book of Proverbs, and, and I was really hope, I hope that we can spread that excitement as we see what's coming up, learning more about family and words and deadly follies and just seeing what it is that Proverbs is teaching us throughout the book of Proverbs. So let's turn to Proverbs chapter 30. For my 31st birthday, I uh, my wife bought me a new charcoal grill. This is last October, not this past October, the October before that. When I unwrapped it, I was thrilled because of because of time and responsibilities. I wasn't able to start putting it together until uh, this last spring, so not, you know, so about a year ago, a couple months from now, about a year ago. Um, When I finally got to put it together, my wife warned me that some of the reviews on Amazon of the grill complained that it took them upwards of 10 to 12 hours to put it together. So I knew that I could not put pull the typical macho man move and attempt to put the grill together without the directions. I imagine that if I had not used the directions, I would have been completely lost and would have had numerous pieces left over, and I would have inevitably had to deconstruct this monstrous edifice and open the directions anyway. Thankfully, with the directions in hand, I spent only about two hours carefully piecing together my grill exactly like they drew it up. You see, the directions for my grill, as the directions for any item that you need uh, to put it together, tells us the way the pieces are supposed to work and fit together to do exactly what they are designed to do. The directions and owner's manual for my grill tell me the way my grill works. To try to put it together or use my grill in a way that is not designed would be foolish. Jonathan Aiken tells us that Proverbs 30 gets at this kind of thing in the grand scheme of life when it comes to wisdom and your way in the world. There is a pattern to the world. There's a certain way that it works. And you need to live according to that pattern because that's wise. Wisdom is the skill to live according to that pattern. To understand what that skill is, you have to go to the maker, the one who created the world, 
to see how the world works. That is what Proverbs 30 is all about. It shows us three important truths. First, Proverbs 30 directs us to look to Christ for wisdom. Second, it tells us to look to Christ for salvation from sin. And third, it tells us to look at the world through the lens of Christ. Let's read this passage together and go before the Lord in prayer. Proverbs chapter 30, beginning in verse 1. Reading out of my translation, it says this. The words of Agor, son of Jekai, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God, I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the winds in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in the garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you. And say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Do not slander a servant to his master, lest he curse you and you be held guilty. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are clean in their own eyes and are not washed of their filth. There are those, how lofty their eyes, how great their eyelids lift. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives, to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among mankind. The leech has two daughters, give and give. Three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. Sheol, the barren woman, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Three things are too wonderful for me, four I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a woman, of a man with a virgin, excuse me, the way of a man with a virgin. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Under three things, the earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king and a fool when he is filled with food. An unloved woman when she gets a husband and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is in king's palaces. Three things are stately in their tread. Four are stately in their stride. The lion which is mightiest among beasts and does not turn, ba turn back before any, the strutting rooster, the he-goat, and the king whose army is with him. If you have been foolish, exalting yourself, or if you have been devising evil, put your hand to your mouth. For pressing milk produces curds, pressing the nose produces blood, and pressing anger produces strife. Let's pray, Lord, 
We thank you for this proverb. We know it is difficult. We know that it is, is difficult to understand. But Lord, by your grace, may you help me to teach it well. May you help us to grasp and wrap our minds around the message of this, of this chapter here. Lord, we thank you for it and what its message is to us. In your name, amen. You may, may have noticed the last several weeks we've been dealing with difficult proverbs. And as you may have noticed, as we read, this is indeed a difficult proverb. The order I am taking in tackling the book of Proverbs comes from a pastor who did his doctoral research on the book of Proverbs and also preached through this book in his church. When I began to study for preaching Proverbs, I was not sure how best to approach the book. So I've been very thankful for this pastor's insight. I'm also thankful for his insight because this would have been a chapter that, left on my own, I probably would have avoided. But avoiding difficult passages doesn't help us grow in our understanding of our Bibles. With that in mind, let's dive into this wonderfully complex chapter of the book of Proverbs. First thing we see here in verses 1 through 9 is that we must look to Christ for wisdom. The difficulties of this, of this passage begin from the very first verse. We have no clue who Agor is, nor do we know who his father Jekai is. Some scholars have, have suggested that the names should be understood by the translation of those names, thus reading, I am a sojourner, Agor means sojourner, and a son of Yahweh the Holy. Jekai could be shorthand for Yahweh the Holy. This is entirely possible, but whatever the case, we don't know who this author is, except for we do know that he is a follower of the one true God. We are further unclear about who the recipients are. The ESV, the translation I use, translates the second half of this verse as the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God, I am weary, O God, and worn out. Your translation may be different than that, maybe even radically different than that. The CSB translates this part of the verse as the man's oration to Ithael, to Ithael and to call. Now, in order for the ESV to get the translation that it chooses, the translator must assume that the Hebrew is a shorthand and must then assume additional letters to the text. This is possible, and many scholars take this route. Your translation, if it talks about him being weary, that's what they chose to do. But it is probably best to stay with the Hebrew text which has been preserved and stick with understanding these words as names for the recipients. As in the case with the author, we do not know anything about Ithael or Ukal. While we know little about who these people are, what we do know is that the Holy Spirit of God breathed out these words for us. Verse 2 and 3 then begin our passage with Agor's claim to ignorance. He says, Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. That seems to be an odd thing in the beginning of a proverb, which is to teach us wisdom. Somebody saying, I don't know what I'm talking about. Right? But... Just 
Uh, but what he does here is he confesses that he is limited when it comes to wisdom. But this shouldn't surprise us because the book of Proverbs regularly indicates that humility is the first step to wisdom. To become wise, you need to recognize that you are not wise and then look to God for that wisdom. Just as Solomon recognized that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, Agor recognizes that wisdom begins with God, with knowledge of the Holy One. As we'll see in verse 4, wisdom not only resides with God the Father, but also with the Son of God. It says here, who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Agur asks a series of rhetorical questions which point to humanity's finite nature and simultaneously points out that wisdom belongs to the almighty creator and his son. No human has gone up to heaven and come back down. No human can gather the wind in his hands. No human created the world. At this point in history, Agor is unaware of the name of the Son, but we do. His name is Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus is the God-man who came down from heaven as wisdom for us. Agor's question is actually answered directly by Jesus in John 3.13, where Jesus tells Nicodemus, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, which is the way that Jesus referred to himself. The point is that God's Son is the one who has access to God's wisdom because he came from heaven. So we must look to God and his Son if we want to find wisdom. So then the question is, how do we gain access to this wisdom? So, well, I want that. How do I get it? Well, verses five and six give us the answer. It says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. God reveals his wisdom in his word. So we must submit to it. In order for us to know God's unknowable wisdom, he must reveal it to us. And he has in scripture. Scripture is true and sufficient for us. We must not add or take away from it. Verse six warns us that those who add to his words will be rebuked and found, be found to be liars. We must not treat God's word as if it is lacking something. This is the very problem that was in the Garden of Eden. When the serpent asked Eve what God commanded concerning the tree of knowledge, she responded that God said not to eat of it or to touch it. God had never said not to touch it. She added to God's command and ultimately because she and Adam thought that they knew what was better for them than what God knew was best for them, they brought sin into the world. Similarly, we come to Scripture and act like God forgot the exception clause for our case. You might think to yourself, well, I know what God says about divorce. 
but you don't know my husband or wife. Or we may say, well, I know what God says about parenting, but you just don't know my children. Or, well, I know what the Bible says about submission to authority, but you just don't know my boss. We think that our case is the exception and that somehow, that somehow just got left out of the Bible. Proverbs warns us that God will rebuke you and prove you to be a liar if you act like God's word is not enough for you. The book of Revelation even threatens a curse to those who do this in Revelation 22, 18 and 19. Knowing that he cannot receive wisdom apart from God, Agor does, does for himself what he recommends to others. He asks the Lord for wisdom. Verses seven through nine contain Agor's prayer. He says, two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die, remove far from me falsehood and lying, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Agor prays here for honesty and contentment. Both of these in this prayer seem to focus on finances. Both poverty and riches will lead you to believe lies. So he prays for protection from both falsehood and lying. What does he mean by this? You see, both poverty and riches will lie to you. Poverty will lie to you. You might think to yourself, God can't help me. God won't provide for me. I need to help myself. Riches will also lie to you. You may begin to think to yourself, I don't need God because everything is good in my life. You're doing a great job by yourself. There's no need to depend on him. Being in poverty or being wealthy are not necessarily the judgment of God or blessing of God. Agor is not making a moral judgment here on poverty or riches. Rather, what he desires is to be content so that he is not tempted to believe these lies that could lead him away from the Lord. Agor gives the reason for this request in verse 9. First, he tells us that he does not want to have so much that he does not think he needs God anymore. Here, the Lord is reminding us that wealth is so deceptive that it is hard for the rich to recognize his need for God. Second, Agor says that if he has too little, he will be tempted to steal. If he is poor, he will be tempted to cheat on his taxes, to misuse petty cash, to be stingy toward the poor, or even to take money off his mom's dresser. He makes the strangest request to American ears because he wants the middle ground. Not too much, not too little. Agor asks God to give him the kind of life where he can learn to depend on God and to praise his name the best. The way of contentment. He does not ask us for his own glorification, but rather the motivation for his prayer is the name of God. Likewise, we must pray for ourselves. God, glorify yourself by teaching me to lean wholly and completely on you. So not only does this passage teach us to look to Christ for wisdom, but second today, we see that we must look to Christ for salvation from sin. 
You may have noticed that the last half of the chapter gives us several numerical sayings, beginning in verse 15. Verses 10 through 14, this section here in the middle, according to Bruce Waltke, help us understand the numerical sayings that follow. Verses 10 through 14 are descriptions of different immoral behaviors. Agor starts in verse 10 by commanding his reader not to slander a servant or his master. In other words, don't ruin an employee's reputation by slandering them to the boss, making fun of them, telling lies, stabbing them in the back, or being overly cruel to them. That person will respond by verbally cursing you, and God will uphold that curse. Scary. What he says here is you are being foolish and wicked when you slander and gossip against someone. And by doing that, you are incurring judgment upon yourself. When that person retaliates verbally, it indicts you before God for your own wickedness. Judgment of sin governs this entire section. Agor describes behavior that deserves condemnation. So verse 10 sets up the listing of verses 11 through 14 and gives us a key for how to interpret them. Verses 11 through 14 describe four types of sinners who will be condemned by God. First, there's a group that curses instead of blesses its parents. The angst-ridden teen who yells, I hate you, to your parents. The bratty three-year-old who shouts, no, to his parents. Or even the grown child who refuses to provide care for their aging parents are all addressed in this passage. These types of behaviors are condemned before God. In Luke chapter 2, verse 51, we see Jesus respectfully obeying his parents at age 12. And then at the cross in John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27, we see, that Je- we see Jesus making sure his aging mother is taken care of. Christ displayed behavior toward his earthly parents that honored his heavenly father. This is the type of behavior we must pursue with Christ's help. The second group mentioned is a group who are clean in their own eyes, but are actually filthy. This verse presents a disgusting image of self-righteousness and hypocrisy. The word filth in this passage, it says, uh, verse 12, there are those who are clean in their own eyes but are not washed of their filth. The word filth in this passage is literally the word for dung. You could literally think of a toddler in this instance. Increasingly, my wife or I will go to get our son out of his crib in the mornings only to find that he has unzipped his pajamas, undone his diaper, and smeared its contents in various places. He has no idea that he's dirty, and is, uh, in fact, but he is in fact covered in his own filth. This is the description of the self-righteous person. They think everything is fine with their lives morally, yet they are nasty. To God, they look like they are covered in feces, but they have no idea. Aiken remarks, those who think that they are not sinners and look down on others as if they are better than them look disgusting in God's eyes. When we try to categorize our sins by calling the sins of the culture worse than the sins of the church, that is gross 
to God. The word pure in this passage refers to those who are able to approach the presence of God in the temple. These folks think they can when in fact they can't. Proverbs is clear like the rest of the Bible that you cannot come to God unless you first know that you are filthy. The first step to salvation is recognizing that you are not clean and coming to God through Jesus for cleansing. We are always in danger of thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. It keeps us from Christ. He must cleanse us because we are not clean and we cannot clean ourselves. Third, there is a prideful group. This group goes hand in hand with the self-righteous group. The temptation to think of yourself more highly than you ought is a strong one. Pride is almost the essence of foolishness in Proverbs. Proverbs repeatedly condemns it as the path to death. And fourth, there's a group of people whose teeth are like knives that devour the poor. There are people who are stingy toward the needy. There are those who take advantage of the poor. They devour them without a second thought. There are those who are simply indifferent to the oppressed. Proverbs repeatedly brings up the poor. It condemns those who mistreat them, and it honors those who are generous to them. In verse 17, we actually see the outcome of all of these groups of people. Even though it specifically addresses those who curse their parents, it applies to all of them. Verse 17 says, The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother, this eye will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. The outcome is the end for all who roll their eyes at their parents. Judgment will fall on these groups, and it is described in the grossest of ways. The language of being eaten by vultures outside the camp is the sign of someone who is accursed. Similarly, in Revelation 19, God's judgment is described as being eaten by birds. The judgment on these types of people comes from the Lord. The good news is that Jesus took this curse for us. The entire curse that we deserve for not honoring our parents, for our self-righteousness, for our arrogance, and for our indifference to the poor, crushed Jesus on the cross in our place. He was taken outside the camp, executed under the judgment of God, and then raised from the dead in vindication so all who believe in him will be declared right before God. So, Look to Jesus for salvation from your sin. We've seen this passage tell us to look to Christ for wisdom. It also has told us to look to Christ for salvation from our sin. And third today, we see this passage tells us to look at the world through the lens of Christ. This will take us through the rest of the chapter. Several times in the book of Proverbs, Solomon turns to nature to give examples of wise living. Like Solomon, Agor does the same. As we must remember in Proverbs, wisdom is not a thing. Wisdom is a person. Thus, true wisdom is found in a relationship with Christ. Only through Christ can we begin to observe the way the world works and skillfully navigate through life. We might call this a biblical worldview. 
when we look at the world through the lens of Scripture, through the lens of Christ. Agor's observation through these numbered sayings will do two things. It will warn us about uncontrolled appetites and will instruct us in wisdom. First, Agor describes that the way the world works warns us about uncontrolled appetites for money, sex, and status. Verse 15 and 16 deal with an uncontrolled appetite for money. It says, The leech has two daughters, give and give. Three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. A leech here is, is a literal bloodsucker that attaches to a host and drains resources and energies and energy. We even use the term leech to describe someone who consumes and consumes but does not produce. The leeches that Agor would have been familiar with had two suckers. Thus, he describes this leech as having two daughters, give and give. They are never satisfied. They just want more and more. John Rockefeller was once asked how much money was enough. Do you know how he responded? He said, just a little bit more. We must avoid people who are like this and avoid becoming like this. Don't let a leech drain you of your time, money, and energy. And... Don't be a greedy person who constantly craves more and more. He then observes four things in nature that are also never satisfied. Sheol is never satisfied because the grave always wants one more dead body. The childless woman always craves a child. Like Rachel in Genesis 31, who, 30 verse 1, who told Jacob, Give me sons or I will die. The land never gets enough water because after the rain, the water soaks away. Fire always wants to rage out of control. This is a warning to you. If you are the kind of person who can't live within your means because your appetite is out of control and you constantly want more, the warning is that you will never be satisfied. Instead, be content with the gifts God has given you. Next, he warns about uncontrolled appetites for sex in verses 18 through 20. Aiken explains, Agor observes things that move on or in something else, but does not leave any trace of itself left behind. They do not leave any tracks. An eagle does not leave a path in the sky. A serpent leaves no trail on a rock. And the waves behind a ship settle so no one ever knows it was there. The other three observations about things that move on or in something without a trace serve the final human observation, the way of a man with a virgin or a young woman. This is, taking, talking, this is talking of the proper context of a sexual relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. Unlike, say, a plow or a sword, these four things involve graceful movement that leave no damage or scar. The fourth and final observation then sets up the horrific nature of the next verse, which is the point. All four ways in verse 19 set up the way of verse 20. 
says, this is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. The adulteress eats, or excuse me, the, the way of a man with his wife provides the contrast for the impropriety of the way of an adulteress. Sexual relationships outside of marriage. The adulteress here eats, wipes her mouth, and says, I've done nothing wrong. She acts as though she too leaves no damage or scar. But in fact, she has done something very wrong. Her behavior is vulgar. And she, uh, but, and she is, has caused grievous damage. Eating in Proverbs is often a metaphor for sexual sin. And that is the connection with the four observations of nature. She goes on and forgets about it. She treats sex like a common act of eating a meal, just like so many treat sex today. They say it's just a natural urge that you need to satisfy, just like you eat when you're hungry. They say if you repress it, you'll harm yourself. This is what we're made to do. It's how we evolved. It's just a bodily function. But 1 Corinthians 6 points out that that is not the case at all. It is a very spiritual act with huge consequences. Paul points out that it's not just like eating a meal. While this woman doesn't feel guilty, she tries to get rid of the evidence. So many people do the exact same thing. They clear their in, an internet history or erase an email or pay in cash at a motel so that no one finds out. Your conscience can become so seared that you no longer feel bad sneaking around in the shadows and betraying your spouse. But in fact, you need to have a controlled appetite when it comes to sex, where you enjoy it rightly in marriage. Otherwise, you will wreck your life and face the judgment of God. While these four things behaving properly in nature leave no trace, the immoral person's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. The final uncontrolled appetite Agor warns about relates to appetites for status and pride in verses 21 through 23. It would be inappropriate for a servant to become king because he's not ready to rule. We see this in history when rebellions overthrow tyrannical governments and that rebellion just brings a tyranny on par with the previous one. This is also exemplified in the movie The Lion King. Got all the kids' attention, Rush, just like that. Scar, who was not ready to become king, took over the throne and just consumed and destroyed the land. Next, we see it's inappropriate for a fool to be filled with much food because he doesn't know how to have a moderate lifestyle. He will become a drunk and a glutton. Third, it's inappropriate when an unloved woman gets a husband, she becomes a torment. A woman who goes through life unloved starts to crave affection and attention and seek it in the wrong ways. Once she becomes married, she will crave her husband's attention in a way that damages the relationship. This is also a warning to dads to love their daughters well so that they are not unloved. This woman craves the status of marriage, but now that she has it, it's not enough. She has made an idol out of marriage that cannot satisfy. Finally, and similar to the first observation in this set, it's inappropriate when a servant girl becomes queen. 
not only does Agor observe the world and warn about uncontrolled appetites, but second, he moves to observations that instruct us in skillful living. He observes four small but wise animals in verses 24 through 28, and then more stately animals in 29 through 31. You learn something about wisdom by observing these animals. He begins with four small animals. First, the ant survives because it provides. The ant is wise to store up food during the, during the good times so it can be prepared during the bad times. This really provides a nice contrast with the uncontrolled appetite for money and stuff that we saw in the previous, chap- the previous section. Agor encourages us to do likewise. You should work hard. You should save. You should not overspend. And you should have a plan for lean times. Second, he talks about the hyrax or rock badger, which is a very small animal that makes its home in the cliffs so that it's safe from predators against which it would be no match. The point is that you need to learn how to live a life that is secure from things that might destroy you. You need to learn to resist peer pressure that might cause you to make a stupid decision that gets you in trouble. You need to learn how to resist temptation toward adultery that will destroy your family. Next, he observes the locust, who has no king, but they still march in ranks. This observation shows our need for community and cooperation. You need to be in a group that takes care of each other. Finally, the vulnerable little lizard that manages to live in palaces transitions us to the next uh, set of observations of stately things. He observes the lion, the rooster, and the he-goat, which leads to the final observation of the king. Here's the whole point. You observe the tiny ants and lizards because they are humble, limited creatures that despite their limitations, even because of their limitations, develop wisdom and competency. Go and do likewise. You learn from your weaknesses, your limits, your drawbacks, and then you humble yourself before God and you will be made wise. Proverbs is often set up as a king instructing the prince so that he can rule. And you see some of that play out here. After all, the lion is the messianic animal of Genesis 49, 9 and 10. And Solomon wants to train the line of David to be wise so that the messianic king might be established. But that will only happen through humility. So learn from the small creatures. And like our Messiah who humbled himself, we must humble ourselves in dependence on God so that we can make our way wisely through the world. Agor ends this chapter on the same note that it began. Reject foolish self-exaltation. We must reject that. If you've been promoting yourself, trying to make yourself look as good as you possibly can, what he tells us here, he says, put your hand to your mouth, the end of verse 32. Essentially, he says, shut up. If you can't help but be promoting yourself all the time, telling everybody how great you are, what Proverbs tells you to do, shut up. Turn off Twitter, ignore Facebook, and repent. 
or else, as 33 shows us, it could lead to a bloody conflict. We have seen in Proverbs that wisdom is all centered on Christ. If you have a problem with uncontrolled appetites for money, sex, or status, if you are not honoring your parents, if you are mistreating the poor, or if you can't see how the way the world really works, it's because you have a problem with Jesus. So, humble yourself and seek forgiveness and transformation in Jesus Christ. He is wisdom for us. Only through him can you truly walk in wisdom that is in a right relationship with God. So as we move to our invitation today, I ask you, how's your relationship with the Lord? Are you walking in wisdom? Do you have uncontrolled appetites that you foolishly follow? You'll never say enough. They are false idols that will will continue to promise you things, but will never satisfy. Only Christ can satisfy. Do you have a problem with other relationships? Do Do you have a hard time with gossip? Proverbs tells us, give it to Jesus. And in some instances, just shut up. Just stop. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior. You say, I've got a problem with some of these issues, and I think it's because I don't have a relationship with Jesus to start with. What Proverbs tells us is come to Him. He is wisdom for us. He died on the cross for your sin, for your foolishness, so that you might be wise. How is the Lord calling you to respond to Him today? As we move into our time of invitation, these stairs are are open for you. You can talk to me, whatever you want to do. You can pray in your seat there. Respond as the Lord has called you to respond. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. Lord, even though this is a difficult passage, there's so much that you've taught us in it. Lord, once, now that we understand, Lord, now that we have at least somewhat of a better understanding of what's going on in this passage, Lord, may we submit to it. Lord, if there is sin that needs to be confessed, I pray that that the people, your people would confess that sin. Lord, if there is someone who needs to come to you as Savior, pray that they would come to you today in your name.